Well, that's for sure. We want to wish Happy Mother's Day this all this weekend, starting here tonight. And mamas, don't forget your gift sitting at the table there. We wanted to bless you. And uh, so we're in a series in part three, and I uh, hope this has been a blessing to you. We've been going through the book of Hebrews together. And um, again, just want to say this is uh, not a comprehensive Bible study. In other words, verse upon verse, what we're doing is we're going through and we're just taking those those those, those uh, strong and uh, overt and obvious and powerful truths that uh, are applying to our lives and really answering that question right here, what happened next? So again, to give you kind of the overall picture of what we're doing here is, you know, this is kind of an after Easter message. We've been thinking and asking that question, Lord, what do we do now that you've, you, you rose from the dead and and you ascended to the Father, and now you look to us, and you said, now go and make disciples. And, and of course, we can kind of look at one another. But we know what happened there in the book of Acts. They were anointed with the Holy Spirit. He said, don't leave until you receive the power. And we talked a, a bit about that. And yet, you know, we still ask that question, okay, well, how do we do this? How, how does the church continue to go and, you know, be the church? And uh, so I chose the book of Hebrews because I really believe that they're within the book is some very critical truths that really help that on the inside and in our heart really need to be firmly fitted into our consciousness. They need to be there in our, in, in our belief system because what the fruit it will produce is activity. It will produce, as we will find as we go and kind of to the climax of the whole book of Hebrews, is faith, growing in faith. And like last week, remember we talked about God being God in your life. God being God inside you and through you, that's the goal. And that's what will, of course, affect the world, change the world. So today, or tonight, in week three, we're talking about Jesus, our perfect priest forever. And now there's a lot of overlapping truths with the writer of Hebrews. He's, he's really coming back, and he's, each sermon kind of re-preaches the concept of Jesus being the, the supremacy of Christ, Christ being the focus of our life, and he's everything. And so he is going to prove that point, point or drive that stake a little deeper uh, tonight in, uh, in what I'm going to share with you in the chapters 5 through 7. Um, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, is, is a real strong exhortation. And I want to start with this. And he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. He's letting us know what his goal is. He's saying, look. We need to have these things firmly in our heart. These, we need to have been beyond these things, believing them, trusting in Christ, and he's going to list some of these things. So as I go through these, you know, maybe if you find yourself having questions about that, maybe that would be a good thing for you. Uh, so for us to experience what happens next, perhaps these are some things that we need to, to bone up on, as they say. So go on to maturity. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. So another, even, even the concept of forgiveness of sin is something that we should be assured of. We should know in our heart that we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just. So we shouldn't have to continue debating that. We shouldn't have to struggle with that. Even though I know as young Christians, you know, but as you've grown in the Lord, and especially this group of, of Hebrew teachers, uh, well, he says they need to be teachers, but Christians, that they don't need to be struggling anymore with the concept of forgiveness of sin. That has been dealt with. That is for sure something that we should know and have confidence in. And he goes, and faith in God. Instruction about baptisms, notice that's plural. The laying on of hands, 
for, of course, healing and uh, for uh, the anointing being transferred to pray over somebody, to set them into an, an office or to lay hands on them for uh, all the things that, that, that we do in the church. Uh, the resurrection of the dead, of course, that's, that's a big one, isn't it? And eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So I love that he stuck that in the middle of our teaching here because I wanted to just kind of just hit on that and to say it is important for us to not get hung up on the things that are the basics, that we need to move on, as the writer here is saying, we need to move on with the confidence that we have in Christ and having that full assurance. Yeah, you might want to grab that. But anyway, the full assurance of who we have in Christ, who he's our Savior, and what that, that really means. So we're going to talk about that tonight. So we talk about the priesthood in chapters 5 through 7, uh, chapters 5 through 7, that he is the, the great high priest. And he's using this once again as the Jews, understanding what the priesthood was. They're going, he's making the point that Jesus is more powerful than angels. Jesus is more powerful and more effective and more long-lasting and eternal than Moses. Of course, that would have been a strong argument for Jews. And then he is more powerful and more effective than Abraham, father Abraham to the Jews. And now he's going to say even more powerful than the Arianic or the Levitical priesthood, which was very critical for them to experience their forgiveness of sin. So he's going to one-up them. He's going to show them by using their sacrificial system to say that Jesus fits right in there too. And it's important for us to understand that he is a priest. He's a prophet. He's, of course, the Messiah. He's the priest, and he's a king. And so he's focusing in on the priesthood of Christ and we're going to find out tonight why that is so important, why that is so critical. So why is Jesus a perfect priest? Well, let's look at the first answer to that question, and that is he was appointed by the Father. He was appointed by God to be a priest. And that's what he's going to point out first. He says, so why is he a priest? Well, the Father said he was. And we're going to find that right in Psalm 110 as a, a wonderful prophetic uh, uh, psalm that the writer's going to quote from in portions, but I'm going to read the whole thing so that we see why he's a priest and, and, and how this happened. Look at Psalm 110. It says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Where did the, Hebrews, where, where did the Hebrew writer get the idea, the concept that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? Right here, prophesy. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, to you belongs the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All Jews understood that Psalm 110 was speaking of the Messiah. So he's making the connection here, a wonderful exegetical connection that Jesus was who they were talking about. That's important for us to know, and, and that, that the Holy Spirit was talking about in this, uh, in this psalm. And so he says, the Father's the one who said, you will be a priest forever. Now, he's going to make this, this connection to this other priest called Melchizedek, and we'll come back to that. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead. He will crush the leaders far and wide. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Speaking of his, the, the coming judgment 
of the coming, the second coming of Christ when he comes again, with, of course, to wrap up all of history and then all of the earth be able to look and say, wow, he was not only the prophet, the Messiah, not only was it the priest that died for and, and, and brought forgiveness to all mankind, but he is the king, the ruler of all of the universe, and every single eye will see him. The Bible tells us that every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow and say that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day they will, every single soul will see it. And out of conviction, out of knowledge, out of understanding that he is it. So number one, why is he a priest? The father said so. The father knew from the beginning that his son was going to come and he was not only going to uh, uh, function again as a prophet, as a Messiah, but as a priest. And you'll see why that is so important here with our next point. So, uh, so uh, why is he the perfect priest? One father said so. Number two, Abraham affirmed his position as priest of God. So what is neat is that what takes place in the Old Testament, and the writer's going to uh, make note of this, is that he, going to Psalm 110, he says, he is going to be forever a priest like Melchizedek. Now, it's interesting. He's saying he's not like Aaron. He's not like the Levitical priesthood. And that's important for us to understand because if he had been like the, the, the Aaronic priests, then he would have had to make uh, uh, sacrifice for himself because Aaron the priest had to come and they had to sacrifice for their own sins first. So it was, a, bottom line is this, just to cut through it all. It was an imperfect priesthood, okay? It never was complete. It was very bloody. It was very significant, of course, but it was all typified. It was all pointing to what was one day going to happen in Jesus Christ. It was all going to point to the fact that the blood of bulls and goats, pigeons, all of that would never make complete restitution for sin. It would always keep us just that far away from it. And of course, the Jews understood this. And so the writer is saying, look, let me show you, Jesus just wasn't another Aaronic priest that would come and join right in to the whole system and just pick it up where he left off. He wasn't going to demand blood from bulls and goats and pigeons and all of that. He wasn't just going to be that Aaronic priest to put on the, 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 the tunic and, and to do what he was going to, that, that all the other Levitical uh, priests had to do. Not at all. He's saying, he's a priest, but they're going, wait a minute, what kind of a priest? Ah, a priest that you have forgotten a priest that God said he was going to be. And that was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, you gotta study that a little bit to know what that meant. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. We don't know a lot about him. We don't. Matter of fact, if you study, you go back home and you study it, you'll find that, Mel that there's quite a mystery surrounding this priest. We know that he existed historically. It's, in the, it's there in uh, the records that Abraham, when he came back from uh, uh, rescuing uh, the people, he, he went to this priest that was well-known, apparently to everyone, but he was a priest of the Most High God. He was a worshiper of the same God that Abraham worshiped. Of course, it's very curious as to how this all worked, but most certainly, one who was a priest who stood on behalf. And so Abraham goes to him and he acknowledges his priesthood. Now, the point of all this is that it was before Aaron. It was way before Aaron. And so he goes, look, he's not going to be in that kind of a priest. He's going to be like this kind of a priest. He's going to be the Melchizedek that has eternal uh, impact. 
It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to be that Melchizedek. Now, what's cool? What does his name mean? What does his name mean? It means king of righteousness. And uh, priest, uh, or no, I'm sorry, yeah, king of, uh, of righteousness and a king of peace, which is really, really cool because what we see here, folks, is a prophetic picture of what was going to happen. God loves doing that and did love doing that. We kind of call that an Easter egg of, of, of prophecy, that God would drop these little historic moments that, that one day he could point back to and say, look, I knew what I was doing from the very beginning, that I was making good on the promise to Adam and Eve that we're going to make this thing right. I'm going to redeem you. We're going to make this happen. Nobody really knew how it was going to happen, but it was absolutely supremely wise on God's part to send his only son. But he had to come as a priest, but he couldn't come as an Aaronic priest. He had to come as a different kind of priest, and it was this kind of priest who was not subjected to any earthly, you know, uh, designations. He's going to be a priest forever and uh, to be able to make intercession. Here, we'll see that here in just a second. So Abraham affirms that. And the reason why he points out Abraham is because why? Abraham is the father of all the Jews. He's just saying, look, even your father, the one whom God spoke to at the very beginning, who you all came from in all your tribes, he acknowledged this priest. And guess what? He was a type. He was a prefiguring of Jesus Christ himself. That's important, very important. Because for Jews, basically what Jesus did and what the Father did is one-upped him. He one-upped him. Because they're going, well, look, he isn't a Levite, because we all know Jesus wasn't a Levite, was he? What tribe was he from? You know? Who knows? Shout it out. That's right. He was from the tribe of Judah. Jesus can't be a priest. That's illegal in the Jewish faith. But he was a priest, but not as according to their history, not according to the Levitical priesthood. Uh-uh. A better priesthood, a perfect priesthood, which would, was established by God and lasts forever. Now, why is that important? Well, we're getting to that. Why is that important for me and you today? Again, we're going to get to that. So it goes on. In Hebrews chapter 6, 19 and 20, it says this. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and steadfast. It enters this inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, our forerunner, has entered on our behalf. He has become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What he's saying is he went before us. So this whole concept, of us being able to come before the, the throne of grace boldly has legal, has uh, uh, eternal consequence and precedence. That's the key. For us to be able to come before him, Jesus did that on our behalf, essentially making it legal for us to be able to do it. We could bypass the whole sacrificial system that they knew and follow Jesus in a perfect path. And that's why we're able to do it, because of what Jesus did and in, 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 in the form in which he did it, and what that will continue to mean forever is why you are forgiven of your sins, my friend. It is why you can stand before his throne of grace, which if we will let this really get into our soul, if we will let this really get into our mind, 
The impact of knowing that our forgiveness is eternal, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the forgiveness that we enjoy is eternal, is, is, it's got to get in there. It's got to go from here to here, and you'll see how in just a moment. He's our forerunner. He's our for, the first of many brothers to be able to do what we're doing. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's there. He made propitiation for our sin. He, he, he made provision for our sin. And what did we learn last week? That now in rest, we can, throw, we can approach that throne of grace. So we're now learning why that is so true. So what does that mean for us? Okay, what does that mean for us tonight? Number one, that he is able to completely save those who trust in him. Isn't that good? Listen to this. Therefore, Hebrews 7.25. So these are, this is his conclusion. Therefore, because of this priesthood, because in how he came, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. And how does he intercede? In this priesthood manner. His blood forever is before the Father, forever making, uh, you know, uh, standing instead, washing our sins away. It's constant and it is forever. So he, that's what God said. That's what the Father said. You will ever stand before me as a priest on behalf of that which was broken, that which was thrown away, that which was torn apart at creation. He said, now, Jesus, you're going to be forever the one that will keep that and, and heal that and be the one who stands on behalf and, and, and brings um, healing to that terror. So, and to completely save. Now, here's the part that I think is so wonderful that can really get into our theology, is that when he says completely save, what does that mean? What does that mean? The whole point is that I think as Christians, when we don't really understand what Jesus did, that a lot of times we, may, we, we never quite are able to fall into the arms of the Lord, never really completely receive the forgiveness of sin and really bring the, the security that comes in knowing that I've been adopted, that I've been accepted forever. So we have what is given here is a wonderful theological foundation for me knowing that because he's forgiven my sins, because he is ever before the throne, that that is not something that I could ever lose. Now let that sink in just for a minute. Now he speaks there in Hebrews chapter 6, and he, he actually brings it kind of home. And uh, Pastor Jamie, I said I wasn't going to talk about this, but I, I, I might just. But anyway, you know, the whole, he, he actually deals with that. And he says, you know, he, he's obviously dealing with those who, who are toying with the fact that maybe they should turn away from Christ, and maybe they shouldn't. But did Jesus really do all this? And did, is his salvation complete? And he says, look, let me just tell you that those who have tasted of the gift of life, those who have tasted of, what, of, of, of the Holy Spirit, and those who have tasted of all those things, he said, how if that is ignored, can that ever be restored again? But the understanding here, and this is, this is my take and what I believe most scholars that, that are honest in that reading is saying is that that isn't possible. But here's the ridiculous thing that we've got to stop if you, if you live in this. And that is, you're saved one day, you're not saved another day. I need to get baptized and re-baptized. 
that I got to go do this and I got to do that. Well, today I'm saved. You know, I was sharing that with Jamie today. One time I, I sat down with a brother who was, who was battling that and, and I just, it rose up inside me and I said, well, bro, are you saved right now? And he looked at me and I said, come on, are you saved right now? And how do you know? And I said, because my friend, if you've lost it, it says right here in Hebrews chapter 6 that you can't get it back. So I kind of pinned him to the ground a little bit to say, the point is this. You don't truly believe that what Jesus did on the cross for you was effectual, was eternal, was reality forever. We diminish what Jesus did on the cross when we do what the writer of Hebrews was saying there in chapter 6. He's saying, and so what he's doing is he's rebuking these guys because they are wavering in their faith. He's not saying you're no longer following Christ. He's saying, I see what you're doing. You, he's basically kind of going to somebody who hasn't been to church a long time or somebody who hasn't been praying, somebody who hasn't been reading their Bible, somebody who's wandered away from Christ and he's coming to him and said, look, I, I just want to warn you in a good way. If you have tasted of the gift of life, if you have tasted of, of the forgiveness of Jesus, if you've enjoyed the fullness of his Holy Spirit, if you've enjoyed this, how can it ever be restored if you neglect such wonderful salvation? The point is, the point is, when we really do understand it, it is impossible. It is impossible to sit down and taste it and know it. And what Jesus did Sometimes we treat what the priest forever in the, in the order of Melchizedek, what, are, do, we, do we really have the audacity to go to him and say that that wasn't effective? Do we really have the pride in our heart to go up and say, wow, that wasn't really enough? We need to think about that. So our first point is what does this mean? It means he is able to what? Completely save. Is that what it just says here? Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to completely save those who draw near to him, draw near to God through him. If we're drawn to God by Christ, by the Holy Spirit, he's able to completely do it. I love that. Number two, he forever serves as a priest to intercede on our behalf. What does it mean to us what Jesus is, is doing right now? I'll tell you what it means. Romans, I'm going I'm to have to borrow some from Paul here. And it says this in Romans chapter 8. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I use this verse because I feel like it, it, it works beautifully in with what the writer of Hebrews is saying here as well. I still believe it was Paul who wrote this, but don't tell anybody. He says he knows. So, if he's able to intercede forever as a priest, who's he interceding for? You and me. And now here's one thing that I want you to know. I think this intercession is not just him up there going, Father, please don't destroy him. Don't destroy Jamie. I know, I know, or don't destroy Pastor David today. I know he blew it today, but please don't. I mean, that's the way I think sometimes we think of the intercession of Jesus before the Father, that he's up there constantly making an excuse for you and me. That's bull hockey. This is what he's really doing. He's interceding. It's a whole different meaning of what the word intercession means. You know what intercession is in this context? He's coming up and saying, don't worry about it, Father, I got this. 
It's like if Jamie and I got into a, a fight, you know, today was we're out for lunch. I'd be like, James, Jamie, just for, it's okay, just, I got this. I'd interject, I'd intercede in the conflict. You see what's going on here? He's interceding, not just praying for you. He's standing right next to the Father. He's sitting right next to him. I don't see him praying at all. What he's doing is going, Father, I got this. Holy Spirit and I got this. So, you know, you almost see like the father leaning forward and saying, well, what's going on with his life? That Jesus said, you know, Lord, we've, I'm a priest, Father, and my blood's got that all covered. Holy Spirit and I know what's going on. We're, we're on it. We're on it. Isn't that awesome? The thought that he is constantly there before the father, interceding on our behalf, because as a priest, he's able to do that. As a priest, what does the priest do? See, that's what we got to understand. What does a priest do? He's going before God every single day to make propitiation. He's there to sacrifice on behalf of those who are looking to him to do it for them. And, but that part of it's already done. So what is he interceding? Folks, he knows your heart. He knows what you're going through. So we connect that with his previous exhortation to come boldly before his throne of grace and ask for help in our time of need for mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Folks, that's what's going on. He's ready to intercede. He's ready to get in the middle of your situation. He's ready to come to your defense. He's ready to war on your behalf. He's ready. So we got to remember that. We got to know this, that he's actively ready to come and make real the power of your salvation, not only of eternity, but of the effect of that that happens every day in your life. God knows what is best for you and me. Let's go back to what it says there. The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with what? The will of God. God's working out his will in your life. We just need to connect with that every time we come before him. What did Jesus tell us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's exactly what happens every time you come. God, adjust your heart. God changes your passions. God refocuses your life. That's what he does. That's what he does. And all things work together. Don't you love that? It's kind of like we live in this kind of weird warp that even if you try to throw something in one direction, it always goes over there. I try to do something in my own strength and in my own will. It's always bent into the purposes of God. Isn't that cool? It's kind of like a Marvel's movie or something. Oh, and uh, so I wrote this. He's not necessarily praying for us. He is standing for us. He is seated, yes, but he is jumping up for, to, to, to intercede as a constant reminder to the Father. Now, this is good. Check this out, if I don't mind saying so myself. To the Father, to the angels, to demons, and to Satan himself, that Jesus is our protector in rear guard. Can I get an amen out of somebody on that one? that that's what he's doing. When Satan comes against you and he's going to try to trip you out to lie to you, here the writer is saying, look, he's, he's got your back if you'll just look to him. So that's what he's doing in heaven. He's fighting for you. He's warring for you. He already just said, look, why are you worried about the forgiveness of your sins? Why are you still debating that? Let's move on to maturity. What is maturity? Knowing that my sins are, are forgiven, now it's time to get on with my life and, and see what happens next. See, you see why this thinking is important? I hope you're getting this. 
this theological truth of knowing that he stands ever before you on your behalf, that you can come to him and he will meet you and he will work out his will in you. But folks, we've got to be engaged. We can't be over here wandering around doodling and doing stuff and all in our own will, all focused on our own life. We've got to get right into the heart of God and that's when it all starts to happen. That's key. Thirdly, this produces confidence and that's a great word, isn't it? This produces confidence because this assures us that our sins are forgiven. How do we lose confidence in doing anything? How do you lose confidence in riding a bike? How many of you recently rode a bike within the last two weeks? Anybody? Rode a bike. Good, good man. Anybody else? Rode a bike. I mean, I didn't. <laughs> I'm not even sure why I even chose that one. But anyway, so if you jumped on a bike right now, you wouldn't have a lot of confidence, wouldn't you? Some of you might be a little dangerous too. You get out there and uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to hold this thing up. I got on a bike one time that was like you could lift it with your pinky and the wind started blowing and I'm like, this is not a good idea because it was, I mean, it was lighter than wind. It was so, it was so light. But anyway, you lose confidence by not doing something. You lose confidence by not doing it. So lack of prayer, lack of asking, lack of knowing, lack of confessing, lack of anything spiritual is going to cause us to be less confident in its doing. The writer is saying here, guys, come on, get going to the throne of grace. He welcomes you. He's forever there waiting on your behalf, ready to move on our behalf. He is ever sitting next to the father just, and I'm, you know, as I said at one time, uh, you can almost imagine him saying, I wonder why my people don't, father, why don't they ask me to do some things? I'm I'm ready to do it on their behalf. It's already been won. Why aren't they asking me? That's a good image, isn't it? We need to ask him. We need to come boldly before his throne of grace through our prayers, through our talks, through our cries, through everything. Okay? So it produces confidence. And again, Hebrews 9. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by hands and is not of this creation. He's saying, so. You've got to understand because he's appealing to their tabernacles because he knows they know that's an important thing that God set up. And he said, well, yeah, he did the same thing, but not the one that's sitting there in Jerusalem. He went to the heavenly one. That's just a, that's just a, a, a picture or a, a facade of what really is in heaven. And Jesus went to that one. He went into the tabernacle, offered himself. He did not enter by the blood of goats, goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Redemption. That word securing is kind of good, isn't it? I mean, Jamie, when you secure something, it doesn't come loose, does it? When you secure something, you, you, you get it down and it's staying. It's a great word. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify, purify our consciences from works of death so that we may serve the living God. What does it mean for him to do what he did? To cleanse your mind, to heal your mind. You know, this is the power of counseling. This is the power of the word of God. The power of the word of God, the power of the knowledge of what Jesus did on the cross and what he continues to do is to restore our mind. That's called the sanctifying process. But it's not just knowing. 
It is literally God going into the dendrites of your brain that when you were born, it was, it was broken, it was infected with a virus of sin, corruption as Paul called it. And it is the work of the priest, it is the work of the blood of Christ to go in and as we fill our hearts with the mind of Christ, as we, as we understand and put our faith, of course that's the key, isn't it? But our faith in what Jesus did on the cross is that is released inside us. The restoration of our minds, the awareness of our sin, and our surrender to him and allowing him to continue to, re, to remove the, the worldly passions, to, to restore us, to be able to see clearly the way we're called to see, to be able to hate sin but love the sinner, to be able to just yearn for heaven, to yearn for our eternal home and not be distracted by all the things in this world. And you'll see why that's important here in a sec. And then number four, and finish with this tonight. This translates into that daily confidence. So we have a confidence before the throne, but this boils down to even a daily confidence in God who can empathize with all of our needs. If Jesus was willing to give up his place to stand in the gap for you and me, to die a brutal, bloody, humiliating death, and then be raised from the dead, having been rejected by the Father, raised, raised from the dead, and then forever. I mean, just imagine the joy in his face when he looked at Mary. Imagine when he looked at those disciples and knowing in his heart. I mean, this gets me emotional thinking about it. That when he looked at them and said, I fixed this for you. I have fixed this for you. I'm going to go to the Father. I wish I could wrap this all up now, but I, I just can't right now. Because guess what? There's millions upon millions upon millions more of your brothers and sisters yet to come. And we're going to fill heaven up so big. And, he's gonna, and, and to just know, he looked into their eyes and said, I fixed this for you. That what I have done is eternal. And he says, I'm out of here. I'm going there to present, go into that perfect temple and, and present my blood, present the sacrifice once for all, forever. And there's not a one of us whose blood is ever, will ever be demanded again, ever. How much more will the blood of Christ do this? How much more? So, as Jamie and I were talking today, you know, Jamie made this statement, Pastor Jamie here. This is why death doesn't matter. It's why death doesn't matter. It's just been completely swallowed up in victory. The whole idea that our sins are forgiven, the whole idea that he's able to go before us and, and he's secured so many things. He's secured our joy and our peace here, but he's secured our place with him forever. And when you know that, when you've got that confidence in your heart, that helps you walk. As I've already said, I've already said this, but I'll say it again knowing that my eternity is secured in him helps me to walk with such joy and such peace, such abandonment, such freedom. And we'll finish with this in Romans chapter eight because Paul puts it best, best. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or distress? Persecution or famine or nakedness? or danger, or sword, I would put all those top on my list of things I might be worried about. How about you? 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, and there it is, Jamie, neither death nor life, neither angels or principalities, demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good stuff. <laughs> Why is him being a priest there forever important? It's because that's his work. That's his position. The father said, you will forever be this, this priest forever, like Melchizedek, standing there as a king of righteousness, as a king of priests, pouring that out upon all of God's people, those who put our hope and faith in him. Amen? So in the end, folks, what does this mean? It means this, that we can walk in this daily confidence. Folks, let's get beyond the fear. Let's get beyond the debates. Let's get back to experience what happened next. When a church and a group of people are filled with this kind of assurance, filled with this kind of wonderful security, as, as, as the writer puts, uses the word, then we can serve with abandon. We can serve with confidence. We can serve with joy. You know, we can serve with an energy that comes from him. We can be the conduit and, and, and do what God has called us to do, amen? So let's stand up this evening.